and welcome to season two of Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast about cooking and reading and reading about cooking, hosted by Sydney-based bibliotherapist Jermaine Lees and Orange-based food writer Sophie Hansen. For anyone new to our podcast, in every episode we chat about a book we've both read and loved, covering the shape it left on us and what part food and cooking plays in the story. Then we read a listener letter and prescribe something to eat and something to read. The podcast and its accompanying newsletter and show notes are housed at Substack and while it will always be free to listen to every episode, you can support us to the tune of just one coffee a month, $4, and for that receive a newsletter every fortnight with all the recipes, book recommendations from our podcast, interviews and more. So you can head over to our Substack, something to eat and something to read to sign up and all the links will be in the show notes for that. Thank you so much. Hi Jermaine, how are you going? Hi Sophie, well and really Pleased to be back, season two. Yes. Uh, and we've got a great list of books coming up this season yes. as well, don't we? And so our one for today uh, is called The Language of Food by Annabelle Abs. I'll just start by doing a quick synopsis and then yes. you can, yeah, let's give you can lead the way with the shape it left on you. Okay. Actually, this is our first foray into historical fiction, I think. Yeah. Um, hmm. It is. Hmm. And so it's set in England in 1835. And the main character is Eliza Acton, who, with the help of Anne Kirby, became one of the world's most successful cookery writers. Uh, But what Eliza really wanted to be was a published poet. And after a publisher told her to forget poetry, go home, write a cookbook, uh, she's very angry. But then, thanks to financial necessity in her family, she decides to take it on. She hires the 17-year-old Anne Kirby, who's a servant, to help in the kitchen and together for over 10 years they test recipes, develop a friendship and ultimately produce the book that changed cookery writing forever. At this time, which was shortly after the Industrial Revolution, exciting new ingredients were making their way into the country and women of a certain class um, were starting to get interested in cookery uh, or at least supervising their cooks more closely. (laughs) And this was the first English cookbook written for the amateur home cook. According to Wikipedia, um, Eliza's book, Modern Cookery for Private Families, featured the first recipes in English for Brussels sprouts. So we've got her to blame. Yeah. <laughs> I actually love Brussels sprouts. I do too. But... I had them for dinner last night. They were delicious. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, fried with bacon. But anyway. Oh, well, do you know what? We fried us with lots of garlic and olive oil, but oh, there was no bacon and they were the poorer for it. But uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and spaghetti as Ooh. well. Also, the first recipe for Christmas pudding, the dish was normally called plum pudding and recipes for which it appeared previously, although Acton was the first to put the name and the recipe together. That's quite a big deal, oh, isn't it? Actually, because I heard a blame for Christmas pudding. Yes, <laughs> I'm not a oh, pudding you're not fan. A fa- that's right. It's my fruit. And, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, we've covered that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but she was also the first English writer to write recipes in a format similar to what we now recognise as standard. So ingredients in order of use, then the method, step by step, and cooking times and temperature guides. And until this book, most cookery books were written by professional cooks for other cooks in service. So there was a lot of assumed knowledge. Because Eliza couldn't cook at all at the beginning of the process, she broke down every step till she understood it and then wrote it out for others to do the same. So she did have an enormous influence on how women at the time cooked, how cookbooks were written thereafter and food writing in general. Um, like many good historical novels, Abs fills in the blank somewhat with her own imagination and takes Eliza and Anne's stories in her own direction. But the premise, timing and recipe testing are all based on research. 
also we find out in this book that gallingly for Eliza Acton, her book was eclipsed 16 years after publication. Um, and actually it was a bestseller of its time too, um, by the much more well-known Victorian queen of the kitchen, Mrs. Isabella Beaton. Mrs. Beaton's book of household management apparently featured lots of Acton's recipes without any credit. And I was really surprised to learn this because I've heard of Mrs. Beaton, obviously, mm. but I'd never heard of Eliza Acton. But I did read a lot of very famous chefs. And actually, I've just seen on the back of the book that Maggie Beer is another one who was inspired by Eliza Acton. But I read about Delia Smith saying she was the best cookery writer in the English language. So she obviously wasn't at all forgotten in the cooking world, which made me wonder if mm. you had actually heard of her before reading this. I, I had, but not in any great depth. And mm. and I was definitely more aware of Isabella Beaton's book, which is, you know, mm. quite widely known. Apparently one difference that she did, the Beaton book had the ingredients before the method uh. and Eliza Acton's book had it the other way around. And a- a- Eliza apparently did concede that it was better that way. But, yeah, apparently a lot of her recipes were really just completely reproduced and that is actually something that's still happening now to a lot mm. of cookery writers and by a lot of cookery writers. But, yeah, I think she... She did inspire, and Nigella and all those people quote Eliza Acton as being real mm. influence. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons that might be is that she was a poet. She was actually a writer before mm. she was a cook, like Nigella, like a lot of um, our favourite food writers, Nigel Slater. And you can tell her, her beautiful prose, really, yeah. in the way she writes her recipes and writes about them. Yeah, it really obviously resonates with a lot of people. So. Yes, mm. no, we'll, we'll definitely get into the way she writes mm. those recipes and the poetry of mm. cooking later, yeah. won't we? But And obviously a lot of other things happen in the book personally for Eliza in her own family situation and for um, Anne. Mm. Let's let's start with the shape it left on you overall. Okay, so I, I really enjoyed this book. I loved it. I mean, it's like right up my alley. You know, mm. It's got food. It's got – I do love historical fiction. It's beautifully written. I love – as you know, I love any time that there's writing about the cooking process. I find mm. that incredibly pleasing. And this is definitely the kind of book that I turn to when life gets a bit curly. You know, it, it completely, even though lots of challenging things happen, especially to Anne, uh, I mean, her story is mm. is just incredibly tragic, what she had to live through and and, and so fascinating. But, but ultimately um, the story of women and friendship and cooking and creating something special uh, I just loved and yeah so definitely a comfort read and I think that you know reading about that era is something that I'm comfortable with you know Mm -hmm. I grew up reading a lot of books about this period I understand it I think I understand it you know so it's very familiar ground which is kind of comforting Mm -hmm. in itself Mm. and this sort of sunny kitchen of theirs and the kitchen processes and learning a lot about actually I think that kind of Victorian cookery, people often thought was just sort of stodge and heavy puddings and heavy, greasy. But actually there was a real lightness of touch in Anne and Eliza's cooking and the way they thought about ingredients and and I loved that. It's interesting. So I was listening to a podcast um, interview with Annabelle Abbs called Stories Behind the Story, which, by by the way, I really like. It's an Australian podcast where they talk about books and two authors. And anyway, Annabelle articulated that actually this is her first fiction book. She'd written nonfiction 
books about strong female women who she wanted to give a platform to, but the first fiction book. And when she gave it to her agent, the agent read it and was like, it's great, I love it, but let's pop this one in a drawer <laughs> and get on to the next thing because it's, she didn't sort of see a market for it, which I find so interesting. Mm. And then the pandemic hit, people started making sourdough and cooking a lot, and the agent said, called and said, let's take it out of that drawer and off it went. So, um, yeah, it certainly... It certainly did that, um, really address that that kind of need that people had for comfort and, you know, a great story but also to be taken into another world in someone's kitchen. And it reminded me what you said in a previous episode, Jermaine, about how shell-shocked World War I soldiers when they were returned mm-hmm. were prescribed Jane Austen books because yeah. that kind of familiarity and, and those sort of social setups that those soldiers would have been kind of understood might have helped when everything was new and un unpredictable and scary yeah held their world together yeah and no no rude surprises because everyone followed the rules I uh I also listened to that interview on stories behind the story while walking around Coles actually oh. <laughs> <laughs> felt quite I thought that was really interesting how timing timing with publishing and mm. timing uh with what what is going to captivate people's imaginations and I agree it is very much a comfort read and I actually wonder if historical fiction often is because it takes you right out of the world you're living in now and puts you in this other time but it's this reminder that life continues on and it did then and it kept going and it will now so it just it it just it reminds you of that big timeline of the world doesn't it that Mm. it's not just all about living now that people have been through all sorts of things in the past and actually the sun still keeps rising yes and I think for me, it gave me the comfort that it comes from using our senses, which I know we talk about a lot too, but, and I know you have always found comfort in kneading dough and doing those things with your hands. I was thinking the comfort I get from cooking was said in this book when Eliza says, um, when she's, I get this comfort from following a recipe because I'm not a natural cook. Uh, but, and Eliza says, I must have order and precision in everything. That way we keep the chaos of life at bay. And my family make jokes about how precise I will be to the point of like um, a spice being a teaspoon. Whereas the rest of the family eyeball spices, which sends me, (laughs) gives me shock. But I actually wonder if it's something that completely focuses my mind if I'm Mm. stressed. And it also reminded me of a therapist I worked with years ago when I was an intern, so just starting out. And she was working exclusively with women who were living with domestic violence. And I remember the end of one day saying, how do you let go of this at night? Like, how do you cope with these stories you have to hold? And she said, I go home and I put an apron on. And as soon as the apron's on, I start cooking the whole day just melts away. And uh, I hadn't thought of that for years until reading this book. And I thought there's something, well, you would completely relate to. Yeah, I do. And I do love an apron as well. I do feel like <laughs> just putting the hoop over my head and tying it mm. up, it's part of the getting ready to cook process. And, I, I mean, I do eyeball spices and I'm a bit fast and loose sometimes with my measurements. But you know what not, you're doing. Not for the book, guys, not for the book. <laughs> but what I do need, like Eliza, I do need to order. So my as I cook, I do keep cleaning and, and because I mm. find that a really chaotic, messy kitchen stresses me out it's and chaotic chaotic takes, mind, takes it? the joy away from the cooking. And my daughter's cooking a lot at the moment. It's part of her Duke of Ed, one of her oh, skills yep. things. And um, I'm constantly telling her, clean as you go, clean as you go, because otherwise it, the joy's gone because you just end up with this huge pile of mess. And um, 
that's not fun. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> look, I, I absolutely loved it. And I loved, you know, how Eliza's talent as a poet and how she found joy in this translated so neatly to recipe writing because, you know, a recipe has to be quite concise and tight and there's not a lot of room for, um, well, there is. I mean, everyone's got their own style, I guess, of writing a recipe. But really people just want to know what to do and in what order to do it with yeah. what ingredients. Um, and so, but but also you want to be taken somewhere and you want it to be well written. And I think, yeah, her, 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 I mean, on the cover of my book, it said, there's a quote saying, a recipe can be as beautiful as a poem. Mm. And, yeah, they really can, especially writers like Nigella and Nigel Slater, who are my two favourite food writers. Yes. I think their recipes are poetry sometimes. Another thing I really enjoyed was the way um, Abs wrote about female and male kitchens. You know, she mm. goes to London and she goes downstairs to this greasy, grimy Actually, kitchen. that is a dirty kitchen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and that's my head, you know, that sort of Victorian Whereas her and Anne's kitchen is light and sunny, clean yeah. and sunny and the hearth is always swept and, you know, possibly uh, there are echoes of that still these days or maybe mm-hmm. not so much anymore. I'm sure in the 80s and 90s, you know, when those sort of male-run kitchens and was that brutal hierarchy mm-hmm. and people screamed and threw pots and pans. And then I think of one of my food heroes, Sky Gingell, who mm. is at Spring Restaurant and she was at Petersham Nurseries, neither of which I have been to but I dream of one day. And I've read lots of writing about her kitchens being light and bright and airy places where no one is yelling right. and everything's clean and, you know, it's that sort of beautiful feminine touch. It's not to say that obviously men can't obviously yeah. preside over beautiful, calm, sunny kitchens, but I thought that was interesting how it she did articulated out. that. Yeah, that, mm. that was quite a difference, wasn't it? And not to mention the pay discrepancy between male cooks and female cooks in that time. Oh, yeah. That really struck me, the yeah. 10 pounds a year for a female cook and the 60 pounds a year um, for the... Yeah. yeah. My gosh. Yeah, that's, well, depressingly, we'd still have pay discrepancies. But um, my last thing about the book, uh, and I'm not giving anything away to, if you haven't read it, I, I was slightly dissatisfied by the ending. It didn't take away of my overall enjoyment. I loved the book and I would recommend it. I, I wanted to know, I felt there were some threads that maybe I wanted yeah. to kind of follow a little bit more. <laughs> yes, there's a gap of time wasn't there and mm. that gap could have but other than that I, I enjoyed it it was I learned something I um I don't want to rush off and cook all the food I have to say yeah <laughs> you know like braised haunch of badger and all those sorts of things there are some beautiful cakes and things that I'm interested in but um it's definitely a food of its time and mm. there, there are echoes of that um that I, I like that you see in cooking now but yeah, it didn't inspire me like crying in H Mart, that book that we did. Yes. I wanted to rush out and cook every dish she talked about. Right. This one, yeah. not so much. But yeah. I loved reading about them. That's right. There's something about being taken back to a place in time, mm. wasn't there? And mm. yeah. Okay, yeah. What's the shape it left on you? Well, I think Anne's story really grabbed me. Mm. Uh, and she was my favourite character. Yeah. Mm. I I loved how. She so she comes from a much lower class, obviously in fact poverty stricken, mm. with a uh, a very tragic kind of family history behind her. And I thought it was really interesting how Annabelle showed us the difference in that. Yes, they're both women of Victorian times, but uh, their privilege is completely different. Yeah, and I thought it was a very clever way that we saw Eliza's privilege actually stopped her from really understanding mm. Anne's 
position and and truly understanding the poverty that Anne had had to live with and also seeing Anne's resilience for how she coped with her situation. I did feel um, that Eliza had a bit of an empathy gap, but yeah. maybe to be fair to her, women of that time, how could they possibly was, yes. have well, known the, quali- the standards of life for people in lesser classes? Because they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have, ever wouldn't have really crossed, crossed that much. No, her, as Eliza's mother can't believe she's even downstairs, let alone mm. uh, talking or, or having True. a friendship with someone of that class. And it was that, that privilege, that blind privilege of... Uh, I want to change the world to make it a better place without actually understanding mm. uh, who she, you know, what she was trying to do. Overall, though, the, the shape it left on me was this new appreciation for cookery writing as well as that nuanced understanding of female roles in the 1800s. But with the cookery writing, I, I was really taken with that idea of recipes being composed mm. rather than written. There's a quote, Eliza says, perhaps composing recipes can sustain and nourish me just as writing verse does. And it made me really then consider how similar poems and recipes are because I think they both capture these moments or dishes um, in as few words as possible, but they all they evoke the senses, like mm. what you were saying. And, you know, I was kind of curious about what you think about this, Sophie, but Eliza says to convey in a recipe how flavours unfolded, how each had brought to mind a scene, an image, a memory. And I guess it made me think, oh, have you ever thought about what you do is more akin to poetry than chemistry? Well, I mean, I absolutely do not put myself in the same standard as those food writers who I was talking about before. But, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm someone who was a writer hmm. before I was, you I was a cook. yourself in that. So I, you know, I do, that was my training. I trained in journalism. I worked hmm. for many years as a writer and then came to cooking and food writing after that. So the chemistry side is not my like I don't write recipes that involve high levels of precision and you know don't do That's macarons right, and things like that. Yeah. Well, no, but not for recipe. <laughs> I do test everything away, everything. I promise, guys. But yes, I do think a recipe because I'm not alone in in saying that I read cookbooks in bed yeah. and I read recipes, and I might not ever cook them, but I just love reading them and thinking about how that might come together. And and so I do try and write them in a pleasing way you know mm, it's not just do, dry yeah. do this then do this do this do this do that. so I, I think so and I, I I mean I've gone and read and it's actually um like under common copyright law I can't remember what do you call that but the book itself um modern cookery for private families oh, yeah. is available you can read it online ah. and we'll pop a link in because yeah. even, you could just google it but I've, I've read a bit of, of it in preparation of this and she is a beautiful writer Mm -hmm. and it is I mean it's still very Victorian yeah but you can see that she she has a real grasp of the of the right but yeah well I guess I should have asked do you think now moving forward you'll be thinking more about poetry as you write um maybe maybe Mm -hmm. I I um I don't know. I mean, I'm certainly no poet and I'm in awe of poets because I think it is such a skill to 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 infuse every word with so much meaning and weight and precision yeah I'm, I will try <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought you know Anne had a feeling that reading our recipes all over again has made my tongue hum and yes, I thought I love oh that. that is such a good way to describe how a recipe is successful isn't it mm. if you're in bed reading it and then your tongue's humming yes you yes try cooking it I love that still with the difference between the class divide I had never really thought about how, you know, it was such a, that Eliza's mother was so appalled that she wanted to cook because ladies don't cook. 
And then Eliza's retort is that, well, I shan't be a cook, but I shall be a cookery writer. That's perfectly seemly. <laughs> and also that intrigued me as well and how things not necessarily or ne- haven't really changed is this idea that um, women can't be seen to be enjoying food. Um, mm. But, yes, she'll prepare the table, but eating without feeling. And I, I thought that was conveyed quite well that when you see the other upper class or middle class, well, it wasn't the middle class then, was there, but the higher classes not necessarily enjoying their food. And Anne and Eliza are delighting in their senses as they develop those recipes. And um, and it's Anne, again, she obviously was my favourite, who says after trying coffee for the first time, God, I think, blasphemously, is in a sip of coffee. <laughs> Just, um, I think that's what this book did for me. It really evoked my senses, not that mm. I felt like cooking those meals either but Mm. just it made me think about the senses more and about the kitchen being the heart of the home I mean isn't that funny we talk about kitchens being the heart of the home and you know god the Sydney real estate market goes on and on about this amazing entertainer's kitchen and things but back then the kitchen was hidden away hidden yeah Yeah. and dark as you say and and I, I thought that was really lovely that Actually, I think there's a line in it too. It seems to me that the kitchen with its natural intimacy is more conducive to friendship and love than any other room in the house. I love that idea of natural intimacy of the kitchen. Yeah. It's that's true, so isn't true, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And you wonder where their natural intimacy came from. Well, maybe that's why they were quite cold and well, Victorian England. <laughs> I'm not sure there was. was. That's right. I'm not sure there was a lot of natural intimacy. I, I want to go back to your idea of that idea of appetite and it not being Mm. ladylike almost shameful for a woman Mm. to be seen to really enjoy a meal you know I was listening to one of my another one of my favorite food writers Julia Tertian who's American and she has a podcast called Keep Calm and Cook On (laughs) and she interviews recently she's done a series interviewing romance writers about food and books and the role that food plays and you'll love it I'll I'll pop it in the show like show notes for everyone but you know they had a really interesting conversation in the one I listened to yesterday in the car about why it's still shameful for a woman to have a really big appetite for Mm. food and to really enjoy it and even you know it's a silly example but the Daily Mail that dreadful Mm. on on Facebook I heard and then I went and looked at it Lisa Wilkinson apparently was photographed having a meal on her own and she had a cocktail and she had a Kindle propped up and she was sitting there and oh, like, you know, little lonely Lisa, you know, <laughs> and I saw that and I was like, oh my God, heaven, yeah. you know, so still, you know, some media outlets, some writers are, are sort of trying to portray this idea that for a woman to have an appetite and to be seen to be enjoying a meal at a table is something, you know, not yeah. to celebrate which I, I really, you know, I thought that was interesting. And and the one time she was sat at the table was with that Mr Arnott fellow yes. who they were courting. And he he took a lot of joy in watching her enjoy her food. Yes. But he was quite, I think, you know, symbolised the, the change in society at that time and bringing in those spices. And anyway, yes. oh, that was a bit of a tangent. But no, I think... it is interesting how those things, so we've come so far in so many ways, but the little remnants of yeah. still the here and maybe. Still... Yeah. Anyway, let's all yeah. just rejoice in our appetites. Yes, <laughs> totally. <laughs> now, the other thing I want to talk about, though, too, is that while this is historical fiction, it isn't all fiction because, as we've mm. said, you know, it's it's biographical. And, like, I think it's a genre known as biographical fiction, but I've in recent years heard it being described as faction as well. Oh. But um, what do you think about books about real people 
who've been fictionalized. I think when it's this far in the past, I'm mm. here for it. I think yeah, fascinating. And she, um, Annabelle, really does um, make it very clear at the beginning and at the end of the book yeah. that you know she, that what parts of it are true that she took. She you know collapsed certain timelines, so it was a better read. All sorts yes. of things. Yeah. Um. So you're aware of that. I don't feel like there's any subterfuge. It's mm. not like she's taking any liberties. I, I thought she did that really, really well. No, I like it. I think it's it it kind of brings a rich, richness to it, mm. perhaps when it's done in a sensitive way. I feel like these sorts of faction books of people who are still alive or a bit more recent, I think that can be a bit problematic because it's not really always your story to tell if that person's... True. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think of The Crown, for example, the Netflix thing. You know, that's an example on the screen, obviously. But, you know, and as the series get closer and closer to the present, I find it more and more problematic. Yeah. To watch. Yeah, knowing those people are still alive and watching mm. maybe. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's that fascinating thing about memory, isn't it, where, mm. I mean, there is no fact really, is there? There's mm. always everyone's own viewpoint and lens through which they experience yeah. a certain time. I think it helps me with historical fiction. In the past I've been quite, I don't really get into historical fiction that much and I think it's, um, I was thinking about this after this book and I, I think the character's, are a way like a real character's way to hook me Mm. and then feeling like you kind of get inside them just gives that more complex and nuanced exploration of that particular time and then it kind of makes sense to me because character's always been my window into a story more than time or place Mm. and I think that's where I've lost interest before is when an historical fiction book is really more about trying to be hooked into the an era or an yeah. event, an historical or event. Or more just a chron- chronology of yeah. events. Yeah. And actually Annabelle wrote a really interesting essay for, or article for the Irish Times, which we can put in the show notes too, but she all about should be trust biographical fiction. And she makes the point that it's a way of writing about people who've been forgotten in history too, mm. the marginalised or the disempowered, and it gives centre stage to someone who would never have had centre stage before, and that's certainly... And Kirby. Yeah. yeah, she would never have had a voice. No. Well, they did look, Anne Kirby exist? Yes, she did, did exist, she? but I don't know that any of her family existed. I think she made up okay. her family background. Yeah. There was a servant who yes. helped her for the 10 years. She says that in the back of the book. Mm. But mm. I did find, and maybe that says something then too, that I found Anne's story the most compelling, but maybe mm. it wasn't there. She, she had more... Uh, Annabelle was able to imagine more, maybe. Yeah, possibly. And then that made her seem. I mean, it was an amazing story that the mother and the lunatic asylum. Asylum, yeah. Unbelievable. Well, have we covered this book? I think. I think I would absolutely recommend it to anyone listening who hasn't read it who is interested. It's a a great read. Yes, definitely. If historical fiction buffs, I think it would be a great read and for those like me who aren't as into that genre it's a very easy entry because it's very mm. character driven yes yeah yeah it's actually being made into a series ah. a read. yeah so if you don't want to read it you can always yeah, watch but- it eventually <laughs> Yeah, it really affected mm. me. It's about someone going through some tough times. So we'll read it and then we will prescribe something to cook and something to read that might part the clouds a little bit mm. for our 
Beautiful writer. Okay. She writes, I have so loved listening to you both discuss books and food on my drives to pick up my children from school each day. It's such a soulful time and I'm slowly working through all the recommendations. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I laughed as I just saw your email with, again, Rachel, as that is currently what I'm reading alongside Stolen Focus by Jonathan Hari. Oh, Johan Hari, sorry. And some pure escapism mixed with shocking truths about our world. (laughs) I was wanting to share with you a bit about where I am right now, hoping you may have something beautiful to recommend to read and cooked to reconnect and reignite love. Over the last two years where we we were all feeling completely overwhelmed and lost, both of my husband's parents suddenly passed away a year between them, leaving him the only surviving son as his brother had already sadly passed away. They used to live next door to us on our property, so we have daily reminders of their passing. As you can imagine, my husband has been deeply changed by this and has much sadness about him now, mixed with getting on with it and putting on a brave face to the world around, but then being a shadow of himself at home. I know grief is complex and takes time. I've also lost my own father, so I have some understanding. But it's really hard to know how to reconnect to a place of delight and joy in our relationship when things feel so down or on autopilot as we so often are with kids and work. I have been making dishes I know remind him of his parents and hoping that helps him remember the good times. Mm. Yeah. What a difficult time and place for that whole family to be in. Yeah. Yeah, and I really feel for this letter writer I was thinking – this is something that we're all going to have to experience because at some point in our lives, not only do we have to face the grief of losing our own parents, but we're also going to have to support loved ones and that's its own particular kind of grief, I think. Mm. People often talk about grief as going to a different planet, finding life as they knew it quite unrecognisable and also that lasts for a very long time. And so my book prescription is actually going to explore this idea uh, and it's called Wintering by Catherine May. It's actually a book I listened to on Audible and I thought this may be useful for our letter writer too because she obviously lives in the country and has young children. She's driving around everywhere Mm. so it can be a – the narrator's voice is very calming as well. Is the author the narrator? No. No. No, no, she wasn't. But she has an English accent and mm-hmm. she's a very calming voice. So that could be a good way to mm. take it in too. But instead of going to another planet, uh, May writes about the darker seasons of life that uh, we all have to inhabit. And there's this quote I'll read you that she writes, there are gaps in the mesh of the everyday world and sometimes they open up and you fall through to somewhere else. Mm. And I thought that was really a very poignant way to describe how it feels when life goes on around you, yet you're devastated. Mm. So she talks about winter being a fallow period in life where you're cut off from the world, feeling rejected, sidelined, blocked from progress or cast into the role of an outsider. And the book is all about how you invite this winter in and that acknowledgement that no one wants to choose winter, but we can choose how we winter. Uh, so again, I, I know I like all these books that normalise difficult times, and and she also complains about this culture we live in where we're um, endlessly cheerleading ourselves into positivity while erasing the dirty underside of real life. And I often fall back on Jung's understanding of liminal spaces and this idea of uh, those big times of change or grief or transition where we feel neither here nor there. But it's actually during these fallow times we get to work out what we want to take with us and what we want to leave behind um, and how we want to respond to all these changes. And 
I love the idea of um, how she's already cooking food to remember her mm. in-laws by and it, that's a lovely way of carrying forward parts of them into the future. And so I'm obviously quite now curious about what recipe you're thinking of suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that recommendation. I have heard of Wintering mm. before and I've not read it, so I'm now um, very keen to. And I really like what you said about normalising difficult times mm. because we all have them and we should all... I mean, embrace seems like the wrong yeah, word. Yeah, I was trying you know, to the word. Just, sort of yeah, just make your peace with moving through that, I don't well, know. Just see, there's just yet another season. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I really, I really have such a strong image in my mind of this woman, our letter writer, who you know is carrying this difficult family, trying to keep the kids' spirits up, trying to you know reconnect and give her husband some sort of moments of joy, I guess, and just get through it all herself. You know, yeah. and and living on a property, I know myself. You know, it can be lonely sometimes. You can't just walk down to the local coffee shop mm. and see a smiling barista and buy a coffee from them like I did this yeah. morning. I'm in Sydney with you. So I get that that's difficult. And there is no recipe I can suggest that will make any kind of significant dent into this. But what I wanted to, I guess, suggest is this idea of food and cooking giving you moments of small happiness mm. in your day. And I, I listened to a podcast recently with a chef who I don't know, but I'm really respect from afar called Anna Ross and she has a restaurant in Slovenia. She's the only currently, as far as I'm aware, um, woman in Europe who has a Michelin star as a head chef of a restaurant. But she was talking about flavour combinations and coming up with this perfect little plate of just for herself or her child or her partner and that being a a small happiness in her day. Mm. And I really can't stop thinking about this idea of small happiness because obviously you can't be happy all the time. It's not possible. And especially when you're going through something difficult, that's just not realistic. But you can find little moments of small happiness and if you yeah. have them and they add up, that can really make a difference, I think. And actually, sorry to butt in, mm. but I was thinking, and you can't be sad all the time. And no. I think that's another thing when people are grieving, there is such a guilt if they laugh or if they do feel a moment of small happiness. But I think it's that same idea of we're never just one emotion. We're just mm. this constant moving sea of emotion and there's something about that small happiness idea is beautiful and mm. maybe when you're grieving it can be a nice reminder that it's as a break from Mm. the grief. Mm. Yeah. So I was thinking about, you know, not just one recipe, but I have got a recipe, but things like, you know, when it's dinner, like dim the lights and light a candle and put on some beautiful quiet jazz or whatever music you like, try and kind of create little moments of of happiness in whatever way that brings for you. Um, maybe instead of dinner at the table, you might do like a picnic on the carpet and in front of the fire or put on a movie that the whole family loves mm. and just eat with your hands and put a whole big grazing platter out or, you know, maybe break the patterns a little bit, do a few right. things that are a bit different yeah. maybe. W- one thing I thought maybe you might like to do and it's something that Tim and I try to do a lot is we go out for a little sundowner just him and I we oh, might be doing lovely. a job on the farm and um take a couple of beers up on the hill and just just the two of us and just sit and sometimes you don't even have to talk just look at the oh, view nice. and watch the sunset mm. and it could be 15 minutes what I'm suggesting is maybe make some it's nothing that we haven't had before but the idea of those little cheese biscuits that I just adore oh, yeah. and my granny used to have them always in a jar and at the end of every day she and my grandfather used to go into their little study and yeah. have a scotch and a couple of cheese bickies and no one no kids no one you know unless you were like bleeding yeah. out <laughs> to go in. Um, and I love that idea of just having a little quiet moment to book in the day before yeah. dinner and homework and whatever so maybe 
you could make these yummy bickies and I'll give you the recipe. Otherwise, a lot of people have them. But it's, and the cooking of them themselves, you know, rubbing the cheese into the flour with the butter. As you know, I love these sorts of yeah, processes that are a bit, yeah, yeah is, is a happiness in itself. And there's a chef, an American chef called Michael Anthony, and he was at Gramercy Park Tavern, which apparently oh, is yes. a really famous restaurant in New York. And he apparently, before he makes everything, anything, he says to himself, uh, stop, take a moment, focus. And then he starts. And I've tried to do that. So, you know, if you, if you can do that for yourself and get your ingredients out and rub them and make your little bickies, pop them in a jar, and then, you know, maybe you could just go out for a little sundowner and it could be a cup of tea. It doesn't have to be beer or anything like that. But just to bookend the day with a little small happiness and yummy cheese bicky and something nice to drink. Oh, that's lovely. Could that could be a nice thing to do. Oh, definitely. And, you know, she talked about being on autopilot. And that's yeah. the way, as you say, of completely changing up the pattern. Mm. And there's something, you know, meanwhile back in the city, can't well, quite... Uh, well, you can. You can go to the park or just actually go outside and just... Well, it's going outside, isn't it? Yeah. I think so. I think being outside, mm. just, I don't know, sit on the front veranda or open a window stick. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but I think that idea of maybe breaking the pattern a little yeah. bit. And as you say, we all fall into autopilot sometimes. And I, I never forget during lockdown, we'd had a big day of homeschooling and I was like about to headbutt a wall trying mm. to understand compound fractions with my son or whatever and everyone was a bit ratty. And Tim had been working and he came in and he said, oh, my God, there's the most beautiful sunset. Let's all go. And so he just grabbed, you know, a couple of beers and packed yeah. chips or whatever and we sat and all four of us and just sat and watched the sunset and then we came down five minutes later and had dinner or whatever. And it was so lovely. Yeah. It really just, yeah, it kind of snapped us all out of that funk and so that's my suggestion maybe and and the cheese bickies I just think if you haven't got a good cheese bicky recipe in your life you need no, one yeah such a nice thing to make and give people and just a t- perfect little bite-sized savory yeah perfect with a glass of cold sparkling or shardy I think mm. um but also really nice with a cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> oh that's that's lovely that is, I already feel a small. I'm, I'm feeling the hum on my tongue, or whatever it was that Eliza says. <laughs> a small happiness. Answers. I think, and, you know, a small happiness can be anything. It can be a perfect piece of toast with some marmalade and the coffee in the morning. And that, or the cup of tea, the perfect first yeah. cup of tea. Yeah. yeah. And I think that idea of just being trying, and it's not easy, I know, but I talk about it a lot. Um, be a little bit more mindful when you, you know, with these moments um, and realising, oh, my God, this is the perfect piece of toast. It's perfectly yeah. toasted, perfect amount of butter, whatever it might be. That's a little moment of happiness that we can control and create yeah. and then, yeah, get on with life. But Well, we're back to our senses again, aren't yes. we? Yeah. 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 I think that brings us mm. to the end of this episode. We, on our in our newsletter, we are going to share the next few books. Yes. And if you'd like to read along with us, that would be fun. Thank you for producer Christy Reading for putting this episode together beautifully and uh, Smith & Jones for the beautiful yeah. music. Is there anything you wanted to say Just, before Oh, letters. Up? I think oh, I always yes. do this at the end of every episode. Yes, um, please. Please, if you'd like to have a prescription for something to eat and something to read, uh, just send us or direct message either Sophie or I on Instagram or email us with a letter Actually, you can do it at the bottom of the newsletter, can't you? I you think can. people have done it that way Definitely. before. You just yep. reply to that. Or if you would like to, Sophie's also had an idea about a little uh, voice memo. Yeah. Maybe you can explain. 
Well, if anyone feels comfortable, we'd love a voice memo as well, which we can pop in the podcast so it's not just always Mm. us reading out the letter. And all you do is on your phone, you just record a voice memo and then you can email it to us. And our email is on all of our places where you find us. So that's another option. Or just write us a letter. We really love hearing from you and um, we really appreciate people taking the time to share what's going on with them and yeah, good or can, bad or yeah. anything in between. Mm. And also all the letters we read out or that people will read for themselves maybe, uh, you get a free case of oh, wine yes. from Single Vineyard Cellars. So actually that will go with the cheese biscuits. Yes. Maybe <laughs> maybe our letter writer will order some Chardonnay. Yeah. Or bubbles. Yeah. Yeah, or whatever. Um, yeah, don't forget that from Single mm, Vineyard, vineyard sellers. sellers. Thank you so much for your support. And also speaking of support, anybody who does feel like being an actual supporter of the mm. podcast by paying $4 a month to Substack, we really, really appreciate it. We love Definitely. doing this podcast, yeah. but it costs us money and time and um, to keep going, we just need a little bit of help. help. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, it would be amazing. Yeah, That's one fine. coffee a month. That's all we're asking. <laughs> Actually, we share a coffee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have half a coffee for us each. <laughs> yeah, thank you everybody for listening and we can't wait to be back in a couple of weeks with episode two of Do we say what two. that book is? Yeah. Why yeah. did you introduce it? Yeah, although now I've, I've oh, forgotten I the author. But Isabel it's, Vincent. Oh, very good. Mm-hmm. So our next book is Dinner with Edward by Isabel Vincent, <laughs> uh, which is a lovely short book mm. about... A woman who, it's a memoir. It's about her, well, she's middle-aged. Well, she's, yeah, she's in the mid-40s or something, I think. And I'm only like a chapter in. I think it's a quick read. I'm really It's very quick, to yeah. Mm. Um, and it's also got menus. Well, mm. yeah. And anyway, she has dinner every week with Edward, who's in his 90s. And I won't say anything more except she learns a lot about life and food mm. and. It's beautiful. Love, yeah. Well, it's not love in that way, but, you know. Friendship friendship yeah (laughs) all right well thank you so much for listening we hope you've enjoyed and we'll see you soon thanks bye sometimes i get to thinking i ought to take up drinking just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to find my way in a lonesome world And I ain't a whiskey girl just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world sometimes when I wake up in the morning my mind it starts a wandering to roam its way right out of my head And I get to thinking about that man I wonder if he's headed south again Or maybe I'll follow where that booted baby led But I am a wandering girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to 
small town lady trying to walk a straight line in a crooked Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking Self-medicate you Right off of my mind Or maybe I could take some morphine God knows it's pain relief I need It works better than waiting for some holy sign But I ain't a medicating girl I'm just a small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world and i ain't a morphine mama i'm just a small town lady trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world i'm just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world Thank you.